This is not about us versus them or black versus white or men versus women. This is a critical business imperative. And if you can articulate that business case where everyone understands it and understands how it's good for business, I've seen many leaders turn corners. Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast, hiring for what's next. I'm Daniel Chait, CEO of Greenhouse. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about diversity in hiring. We'll touch on many issues, ranging from attracting a broader slate of candidates to reducing bias in interviewing to building an inclusive culture and much, much more. I recently sat down with Michelle Gadsden-Williams. She is the Managing Director and the Global Head of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at BlackRock with an impeccable 25 years of experience in the field. Michelle has worked in consumer goods, pharmaceuticals, financial and professional services industries. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to have this conversation. Uh, You've got such a breadth and depth of experience and wisdom to offer to our listeners. I'd love to hear just a little bit of a background. So how did you get started in this career? I started my career in marketing right out of undergraduate school. And I worked for a company called Phillips Van Heusen. I left that company and I started working for another company that gave me an opportunity to rotate to various functions within that particular organization from finance to procurement to marketing. And I made my way around to different divisions. And my last rotation was in human resources. And my assignment was to go out and to talk to those companies that were best in class from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, and to present my findings to the president and the executive committee. I collected all the data, came back, presented that information, and the president and human resources officer said, so do you want the job? And I said, absolutely, yes, and I've been doing this work ever since. So that's the long and short of it. I've been doing this work for 25 plus years in a variety of different industries. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a journey. So you rotated through literally every department in the organization and and then you hit on what turned out to be your calling as the last stop on the journey, hey? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what changes have you seen in terms of what leading companies are doing today versus what they were doing a generation ago? When I started out in this work years ago, everyone talked about this as affirmative action and representation and how many individuals of diverse profile can we attract and recruit to this company? So it was more a head counting type of an exercise. Whereas now the conversation has evolved in that the executives, the CEOs, they're all understanding that this work is a critical business enabler. So if you want to have improved performance and improved productivity and improved innovation within your company, that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a lever in order to get to those things. Those companies with diverse management teams have 19% higher revenues. Those companies that embrace diversity, companies that are more diverse, are two times more likely to be more innovative in their market segment. And 85% of the CEOs say that by having a diverse workforce, it impacts their bottom line. So there's all kinds of empirical data and research out there to substantiate that this is really and truly a business imperative and no longer simply the right thing to do. (music) 
So the willingness is there, the vision backed up by the stats that you're talking about is compelling. And I think you hear leaders now saying, we value diversity and inclusiveness in a way that they weren't a generation ago. What are they doing about it? What are the steps that a leader can take to actually get the benefits of that change? So a couple of things I think you can do. The first of which is I think you have to focus on your employer brand. What are you saying to the external world? Are you targeting the diversity individuals, the demographics that you aspire to have in your organization? So looking at your career page, are there images of diverse execs present? Is your vision and mission clear? Looking at your social media channels, are there pictures from different ERG, employee resource group events? Are you showcasing a lot of the efforts that you're doing? Is there external awareness in terms of who you are and what you're doing and what your philosophy is from a DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective? So I think you need to start re-examining what your brand strategy looks like. And then from there, what I would also suggest is that you partner with some multicultural professional organizations, student organizations like the Society of Women Engineers or National Black MBA Association or Nita Borg or online organizations that target women, that target the LGBTQ segment, junior military officers, colleges and universities, the HBCUs or the historically black colleges and universities. The list goes on and on. So you have to do something a little bit different and not rely on the same traditional methods of recruiting. Otherwise, you're going to yield the same results. In addition to that, re-examine your diverse candidate referral programs. A lot of companies have these programs in place, but perhaps there's something more that you can do to ratchet up the diverse candidate profiles of individuals that are coming into the organization. So if you're looking for more diverse hires, reach out to employees who reflect the demographic that you seek. The employee resource groups can certainly help with that as well. And then the other piece I would say is offer internships, offer opportunities to students who you wouldn't ordinarily look to have in certain positions within your organization. 67% of job seekers typically say that diversity is an important factor when they're considering a company for employment. And we see that everywhere we go, on college campuses, at career fairs, at some of the associations that we partner with. This is a topic that comes up incessantly. One of the things that I have seen from the new generation coming in the door is that they are looking for purpose-driven work But they're also looking for that diversity that we all speak about, particularly millennials and Generation Z. When you're on college campuses, they are looking for the diverse representation from a company that's standing in front of them at the career fair. It's a new day. I've heard it said often that diversity starts with inclusion, that you can't just go out there and try to market yourself to a wider range of people, but you actually have to examine internally what's happening. It's not just about bringing talent in the door. When you're talking about a comprehensive inclusion and diversity program, it requires the attraction, the development, the retention, and the advancement of talent. Because in my view, the easy thing you can do is to bring talent into an organization. 
What you do with them while they're there is a whole nother discussion. So what you don't want to have is a leaky bucket is bringing them in and they're leaving on the back end. And you don't want to bring them in and leave them to their own devices to figure out how they're going to survive in that particular organization. So they're going to need support when they come in the doors. They need support systems. They need mentors and sponsors. They need people looking after them, giving them air cover when possible, giving them feedback, showing them the lay of the land. You have to walk the talk. You just can't say we want to be diverse and then you do nothing that supports that statement. Where companies tend to miss a trick and to miss the target is when they don't allocate the funding. And then when there are headwinds in terms of the business, usually what happens is diversity programs are the first to be cut. So those are just a few examples of barriers that might get in the way toward you know, pushing some of the diversity initiatives within organizations. It starts with the CEO and his or her direct reports, making sure that everyone is in lockstep in terms of their understanding as to why this is important to the organization. And then there's the accountability of those individuals to making sure that things happen to support the diversity effort. I'd also say the regular communication and consistent communication around what the diversity and inclusion strategy looks like within the organization and why it's important. I think to have that declaration and making it well known throughout the masses within an organization so everyone understands why we're doing it, why it's important, and everyone should have license to help facilitate what it's going to require in order to get to that next level of diversity within that organization. I think it requires doubling down in terms of programming, resources, communication, and just getting it done. All you have to do is demonstrate some effort. What are you doing to support diversity and inclusion? Are you attracting or hiring talent? Are you developing talent within the organization? What are some retention initiatives that you have going on? Are you supporting the employee resource groups or business resource groups? And are you promoting individuals? Do they feel like they can ascribe to whatever their North Star is? So these are just a few examples of the kinds of things that I think would constitute a robust diversity strategy. It requires real work, rolling up your sleeves and doing something. In my view, everyone has to be in lockstep. If you don't have the commitment coming from the leaders on the business side, or if you don't have the commitment coming from your HR colleagues, none of it works. Everyone has to be in lockstep, all hands on deck, all stacked hands on deck in order for this to work. Change happens one person at a time, and you have to meet people where they are. Everyone is not going to be in alignment or buying what you're selling from a DEI perspective. And so I think it requires just to have some one-on-one conversations with those who haven't turned that corner just yet. And change is hard for people. So I think it just requires having a very honest and candid conversation about what this work is, demystifying you know, what it isn't. You know, This is not about compromising quality to get to a number. This is not about us versus them or black versus white or men versus women. This is a critical business imperative. And if you can articulate the goodness around that business case where everyone understands it and understands how it's good for business, I've seen 
many leaders turn corners. Sometimes you have to have that personalized philosophical conversation around it. You do what's required in order to get people to buy into what it is that you're selling. In most of those cases, you described it as either originating or being led from the CEO. Is that who needs to drive it? Can this be done successfully without the CEO's hands-on involvement? It's everyone's job. It's the CEO, it's his or her direct reports, and it's all the people who work for that organization. Everyone needs to have some skin in the game in order to make it all work. You know, so it's a top-down, bottom-up, grassroots type of effort. And so everyone has to feel like they're part of the building of the diversity shift within an organization. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, none of it works. If everyone just looks at this as just an HR-driven initiative, that in and of itself can be quite limiting because this is just not about people. That's part of it. It's about talent and culture. That's two-thirds of the work. But the other third is about the business. Your company should be reflective of society and the markets that you're trying to serve. Where diversity recruiting comes into it, you want to have a broad range of talent, of competency, of skills and perspectives, and you want to have wider candidate pools of individuals to choose from when stretch assignments come about or promotions come about. But it's really the business enabler that I think that's where most companies get tripped up in it. There are some leaders that just don't believe that the business case exists. And there's enough evidence out here, there's enough white papers and empirical research to substantiate why diversity, equity, and inclusion is good for business. And for those companies that just don't get it, like remember the snafu with Gucci and the turtleneck that looked like blackface? And uh, this is what happens when you don't have the demographic reflected in the rooms where decisions are being made about products. Those incidences happen when you don't have leadership or employees that are reflective of society who are going to raise their hand and say, you know what, that might not be such a great idea. And here's why. So right. there have been many examples of where companies can do better and where they've learned the hard way. So what should those business leaders be measured on? How should they measure success? There's a couple ways that you can do this. A lot of chief diversity officers have this. It's a monthly scorecard or dashboard. But we look at things like the percentage of diverse candidates at every recruiting stage throughout the course of a year. We look at the percentage of minorities at different levels within the firm. We look at employee satisfaction scores. So when you bring them in, are they happy and are they staying? Retention rates among the diverse populations within an organization. We look at things like the percentage of diverse candidates who are interviewed by hiring managers, the percentage of job offers that are extended to diverse candidates, turnover rates. We look at every aspect of the employee life cycle. So from the time that they're going through the sourcing stage to once they're hired and once they're integrated into the organization to you know, are they being promoted? Are they happy where they are? Are there awards and recognitions from different advocacy groups or special interest groups like Diversity Inc.? Most organizations have employee opinion surveys, 
and these types of measurements in place. And I think it's an important tool to have. You want to understand on the ground, what is the lived experience of every employee within your organization, let alone diverse employees. So this is a mechanism to do that, to have your finger on the pulse of your people. Now, is it broadly communicated? That's a phenomenon that's becoming a lot more common. We're starting to see a lot more companies do it. I know Accenture has done it. Some of the pharmaceutical companies have done it. Some of the consumer goods companies have done it. Some of the tech companies have done it. I know Google has. So it's becoming a lot more mainstream. And I quite honestly, I like it. I think what it does is it basically says to the external world, we as a company, we are being transparent. This is who we are. It's also a mechanism to hold people accountable because once you put it out in the public domain, people are going to look year on year, what changes for the good occurred as a result of all of the efforts that you've put forth. So I like the fact that companies are being a lot more transparent to say, this is who we are. We are not expert at this. We want to get better and better. And we want to share with you our success, our progress year on year. And so I like the fact that companies are doing that. I think it's a really bold diversity strategy. There are some companies, they've aligned it to the performance management process. So it can very well be a part of your raise or your bonus. It's very much a part of the performance management metric system. And I think that's the right way to go. In my view, if you're a business leader, human capital metrics should be very much a part of your assessment. It's not just what you do in an organization, it's how you do it. People want to know how you lead, how you engage, how you develop talent. I think it should be very much a part of the performance management process. Let's talk about allyship. You hear that a lot in DNI expert circles. What is an ally, or some people use the word accomplice? What is an ally, and how can I become one? An ally, in my view, is an individual who is willing to not only understand the lived experience of individuals unlike him or herself, but understanding that inequities exist within an organization and that they're willing to help in creating a more equitable culture, environment where everyone can thrive. They take part in that. They don't accept the status quo. They speak up and speak out about the inequities. That's my own personal definition of what an ally is. And any individual can be an ally. You know, women can be allies for people of color. Men can be allies for women. Cisgendered can be for LGBTQ individuals and thus and so. I truly enjoy allyship when I see it in action, and it works incredibly well. We need more in our workplaces and spaces. And it requires courageous conversations. So if you see an inequity happening or someone being treated differently, the ally will raise that situation to whomever the decision makers are, whoever the leaders are within an organization. Usually an ally 
is part of the majority demographic of that particular organization. So they have an opportunity to facilitate change by the very nature of who they are within an organization and by helping those that are marginalized. If there's bias or discrimination or something along those lines that are taking place, this person can help diffuse that. I think it's a powerful position to have, but it requires courage to do it. I've sat at boardroom tables where there have been offensive behavior discussed and no one calls it out to say, you know what, that's not acceptable. I worked for a woman by the name of Sally Cunningham during my days at Novartis. I was invited to the boardroom to present to the CEO and his direct reports on the results coming from the employee engagement survey and to also talk about the challenges that the employee resource groups were having, particularly the black employee resource group members. And I was sitting toward the back of the room and Sally was the chief human resource officer at the time. And so when I walked into the room, I thought I'm not a member of the executive committee. So you were to sit toward the back of the room. And she turned around and when she saw me sitting toward the back of the room and she said, no, Michelle, you don't sit at the back of the room. You sit here with us at Mm. this table. And what that did for me was it was a boost of confidence for me to say, this is not about us versus them, or these leaders are more superior than me. I was a leader at that organization and she invited me to come sit at the table with her and her peers and the CEO, because I had something meaningful to say. And I was a leader in that organization and I deserved to have a seat at the table and not behind that. So that's what an ally does. And she did that in the presence of the CEO and her peers who were mostly white males who were sitting around that table. Now, the rest of them could have invited me to do that, but she made it a point to say, nope, you don't sit there. You sit right here next to us. That's what an ally does. You've talked about diversity 2.0. What does that mean? This happens when diversity, equity, and inclusion is so far entrenched into an organization that all of this, what we're talking about, happens organically. You don't need a chief diversity officer to orchestrate or to lead the strategy, so to speak. It just happens organically. I think we're far from reaching that goal. I think we've made a lot of progress over the years, but we still have a ways to go yet in order to realize diversity 2.0 from my perspective. There are some companies that are doing a very good job relative to diversity, and there are some that are extremely embryonic in their approach. If you look at the composition, particularly you look at the board of directors of a lot of the Fortune 500 companies, they're not quite as diverse as we would like them to be. If you look at the executive committees and the CEOs of the Fortune 500 or 1000, they're not quite as diverse as they should be or could be. So we still have a ways to go yet. From my perspective, and this is just my own opinion, I think some of the consumer goods companies like Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo, 
They're doing it right. Some of the pharma companies like Pfizer, Novartis, Johnson & Johnson, they have a wonderful chairman and CEO and Alex Gorski. His leadership is legendary. And I worked for Alex for many years when he was the CEO of Novartis Pharma a few years back. I think that J.P. Morgan Chase, through their Advancing Black Pathways model, Jamie Dimon's got it right. He's made a bold statement in terms of why diversity is important and why black talent is important. And so I think there are several companies that are really doing a great job in this space. I hope that one day we don't just simply continue to talk about this, that it just becomes so much a part of an organization's DNA, a part of the way in which they operate every single day, that you don't need someone like me being the puppet master, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? That you don't need a chief diversity officer telling people, okay, you need to have this many persons of color, this many disabled, differently abled. I want us to get to a point where equity and fairness and parity just become second nature to these organizations and that they will be all the better for it because they'll see it as a true business imperative versus just simply the right thing to do. Well, Michelle, you're certainly more than holding up your end of the bargain. You're doing your part, setting an example, learning and leading for decades now. So we're so glad to have you on the podcast and for sharing some of your perspective and your wisdom. This is an honor. Great to catch up with you. Take care and be well. Thank you. Take care. I'm joined now, as always, by my friend, Ariel Lopez. Ariel is the founder and CEO of NAC, a data-driven talent platform. Hey, Ariel. Hey, Dan. What's going on? Well, it's not new news that women and minorities face unique challenges in the applicant pool when they're applying for jobs. There's certain socialization dynamics. It's not easy to fix. Like the fact that women may not apply for a role unless they're 100% qualified, while men often apply to jobs if they think they're only 60% qualified. But we can impact that in a big way with small, meaningful changes. And many hiring teams are just now discovering that one way they can proactively increase the number of diverse candidates within their applicant pool is just to improve the language they use in their job descriptions. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think, A, creating a good job description is hard, and that's why most job descriptions are subpar. That being said, I think it's so important to make sure that each job description actually aligns with the role, being very clear on the qualifications needed for the job. We talked about how men sometimes apply, even though they're completely underqualified and women are afraid. I think we save everyone a lot of time with just being honest about what we care about. I've seen job descriptions that ask for a hundred things and you and I both know they really just want 20 of the things on that list. I've seen job descriptions with made up titles. I saw someone looking for a full stack marketer a few months ago, and I have no idea what that means. (laughs) So (laughs) imagine being a job seeker, looking at this laundry list of qualifications, looking at this confusing job title, looking at this messaging that's asking for a rock star or a guru, 
can be really difficult to understand how you would actually be valuable in this role or if it's even the right opportunity for you. What have you seen as far as creating job descriptions to make them more effective? Yeah, there's big obvious stuff. Everyone hates the ninjas and rock stars stuff. Everyone knows that job descriptions are too long. And to your point, you need to be honest. I think beyond that, there's some really interesting nuance. There was some research by a researcher at Tufts named Laura Gee. She published a paper a few years ago in Management Science Magazine, where she showed by analyzing millions of job posts that just including a little bit of additional information about how many other people have already applied to this job greatly improved the gender balance of the applicants. So you need to pay attention to the totality of the job posts and small changes can have a big impact on the number and balance of your applicants. Yeah, small changes turn into big changes over time. Truth. Anyway, great (laughs) to talk to you again, Ariel. Always a pleasure. Always great speaking to you too, Dan. If you enjoyed the conversation, please make sure to like, subscribe, and review the podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode.